0: would have made a great worship band right hey how is everybody tonight you guys good hey uh really really glad to be back with you guys we're kicking off this new series called lift ticket and uh last weekend had some friends come to town uh one of them it was their first time to ever be to colorado and the other it was just their uh they had never been to colorado but but once when they were a little kid and so we wanted to give them a real like Colorado experience. And so one of the things we did was we went skiing and we went to Breckenridge. Okay, so now if you were here last week, you may remember in the video that I did that prior to last weekend, I had not been skiing for about 10, 11 years. And, and to be honest with you, um, when my friend Colin and I got up there at Breckenridge, the, the wives actually opted to go shopping. That's a whole different sport for them. All right. We, we opted to go skiing. When we got there, the whole like shapes and colors thing eluded us, you know, so we just hopped on different lifts and just took them to the top. And wherever we landed, we decided to ski down. Now, There's that moment when you get off the lift and you kind of turn or whatever. And for me, there's that moment when you pick yourself up after you fell off the lift, which is terribly embarrassing, by the way. And uh, you turn and there's this row of people who are kind of standing like this on the edge of the run. And so you just kind of go over and turn and stand there with them and you look down with them. And there's this moment that happened several times for me and my friend Colin where we looked over the edge and then looked at each other and went, oh, crap. You know, like now now what do we do? Because this looks totally unmanageable. And so this is way over our heads. It's way out of our league. And so the question becomes in that moment, should I stay? Or should I go, you know, and the options are few and far between at certain points if you get on the wrong lift. I mean, you got an option of kind of shimmying through the woods, but you don't know. I mean, that's an unknown. You may get to a run that's worse than this one. So do I just go for it or do I try to find another option? And that's a that's a scary moment. And you can say to me all you want in that moment. Well, Scott, you took the wrong lift. You should have paid more attention to the trail map. Scott, you're not very experienced. Perhaps you should have read about skiing. Scott, your skis are too long. You're not equipped. You're not You're not ready to do this. You can tell me that all you want. But in this moment, guess what? It doesn't matter anymore, does it? The wisdom of me getting there doesn't matter anymore. The point is now I'm here and I'm going down the mountain. One way or another. So the best thing I can get from anybody is advice on how to best navigate the mountain. Now let me tell you where this series is kind of coming from. For the past 10 years of working at a church, I've had people come to me numerous times on numerous occasions where they've come up to me and they're going, okay, Scott, here's my circumstances. I've got kind of this thing in front of me. I've got these choices in front of me. And the question is posed to me, Scott, should I stay or should I go? Should I marry him? Should I marry her? Should we have more kids? Should I take that job? Should, should we move over there? Should we get divorced? All kinds of questions like that. And so sum it all up and they look at me with this question, which is basically... Scott, what is god's will for my life in this situation? And then they stare at me blankly And there's pressure in that moment. I mean when somebody asks you to tell them what god is, you know Has for their life. I mean that's a lot of pressure And The truth is we all ask this question all the time. We ask god How do I discover your will for my life? Or if you're not a follower of Jesus, you still ask the same type of question. You just go, what's the best thing for me to do right now? We've all asked those questions. So let's kind of operate on the premise of how do we discover God's will for our life in those moments where we're looking down the run and we've got a few options. We need to know, should we stay or should we go? There's a few assumptions packed into that, is there not? The first assumption in that statement is simply this, is that God's hiding his will from me. We tend to operate under this assumption that god is hiding it that we've got to crack the code Just the word discover infers that we have to unearth god's will we have to dig it up We have to like dance on one foot long enough to where he'll finally go. Okay, here you go It's like some kind of cosmic game of let's make a deal and we're just praying that if we choose door number two That's the one god wanted us to choose And the second assumption is this is that there's only one run that could possibly be within god's will And if you don't choose correctly, then your life's going to get really difficult. Your life's going to get incredibly hard. You're going to get punished or struck by lightning or something. And if you choose correctly, then life will be smooth sailing. So with those views and those assumptions and those questions and all that, there's this enormous amount of pressure on us and this enormous amount of pressure in our decision-making process. And so oftentimes we end up paralyzed, don't we? Oftentimes we end up kind of in this position looking over the mountain going i'm not going anywhere I'm, just going to stay right here because if I go i'm afraid it's going to be whoa big trouble And if I stay maybe that'll be trouble too, but at least I know this I don't know what that is And so let's put it this way Let me ask you personally you today just you If you were faced with a life-altering decision today Right now as soon as you walked out of here, would you feel equipped to make a good decision? Would you feel more than equipped to do the right and good thing, the best thing? Do you feel like you have the right equipment to discern the way you should go? When I was in high school, we used to go skiing in this place called Paoli Peaks. I'll show you the trail map. It's really elaborate. Um, It's in southern Indiana. It has like four or five runs. All right, there it is. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Now this is Breckenridge's back here. If you can see that, this is a little—it's comparable. You know, uh, we would go to Paley Peaks. It's in southern Indiana. It's like surrounded by corn. Okay, elevation is like 17 and a half feet. You know, that's that's all it is—the side of a mount of a hill. They—they they make. Ice, not snow, okay? And you get a lot of, like, farmers and a lot of people from Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana who have no idea how to ski coming to Paoli Peaks to ski together, which is really, really funny. I mean, it's not uncommon to see people in their Carhartt overalls, you know what I'm talking about, and work gloves with John Deere hat on skiing down the side of this hill. I mean, it's pretty awesome. I remember one time a group of us high school guys, about 20 of us, all just took off our shirts And peeled down to our boxer shorts and went down the mountain. Wrecking on ice with little to no clothing on doesn't feel good. All right? Just that's a tip for you because you guys are Colorado people. You don't do that kind of stuff. All right? But when you reach the top of a mountain and you're not equipped and you don't know what you're doing, there's no like skiing for dummies book that will help you in that moment. There's no like cliff notes thing you can go through real quick that will help you navigate down the mountain. By the time you're there, if you're unequipped, it's just too late. And oftentimes that's how a lot of us feel, right? Regardless of how wise it was for us to get to where we are, that's where we are. And we feel incredibly ill-equipped to discern what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to do it. And so we're in need of someone to speak into us what to do. And it probably won't surprise you tonight that I would propose that that person that should speak into us first on where we should go and what we should do would be God, So as we dive into this series, let me ask you a few questions. What if it were true that God wants you to know His will even more than you do? And what if it were true that God's actually not hiding His will from us? And what if it were true that there were some filters that we could put in place to make wise and good and right choices that come directly from God Himself? And what if we could feel incredibly equipped the next time we have a big or small decision in front of us to make that decision? Is there anyone who'd be interested in that? Because I am so let's dive in we got a lot of ground to cover tonight We're going to kind of paint a broad stroke and then each week We're going to add new filters to it as we dive into this series. So let me ask this question What if our assumptions are wrong? What what if it's not always true that when we have multiple choices in front of us different runs We can go down. What if it's not always true that god's only rooting or voting or whatever you want to say for one of them what if he's not like our cosmic lifeline buddies going, oh, I think you should choose a Brun A? You know? What if that's not always true? What if being in God's will is not always the path of least resistance? What if being in God's will is not a bunny hill? What if being in God's will is not a green slope? What if what if what Jesus said is really true when he said that if you follow me, it's like taking a narrow, difficult path? And the other side of that is what if What if being outside of God's will isn't always harder? What if being outside of God's will isn't always like charting the double black diamond? I mean, Jesus said, taking just, you know, being outside of God's will is like going with the flow. That's the big, broad, easy path. You don't even have to do anything to fall into the mainstream. That's just easy. You have to intentionally pursue Jesus, and often that is not the path of least resistance. You see, biblically speaking, Historically speaking, anytime God wants his people to do something specific, you know what he does? He specifically and oftentimes supernaturally tells them what to do. Anytime God wants you to do something specific, at least historically speaking, biblically speaking, he specifically tells you. And here's the thing, these people I'm going to tell you about here for a second, they didn't pray for God's will. They didn't ask for God's will. They didn't flip the Bible open and just kind of randomly point to a verse and go, I guess that's God's will. No, God brought his will to them before they sought it from him, which is different than some of our assumptions about how to discover God's will. I mean, this guy named Noah, I mean, God came to Noah and specifically told him, build this boat, and I'll tell you how big, and I'll tell you for how long, and I'll tell you what kind of materials to use. This guy named Moses, he sets a bush on fire. Moses, minding his own business, just tending some sheep, sets a bush on fire, starts speaking through it to Moses and tells him what to do. This guy named Balaam, he starts speaking through his donkey, all right? tells him exactly what to do and what not to do. This guy named Belshazzar, this this hand appears on a wall and starts writing out exactly what to do and what not to do. This guy named Saul, he's traveling on a road. He gets blinded and he's dropped to his knees and Jesus appears to him and tells him exactly what to do and what not to do. And I know what some of you are thinking. Because some of you have a major decision that's on your heart, in your mind right now and it's been keeping you up at night. I mean, you until you decide on this, until you reach a decision on this, you're just not going to sleep. And so you're going, Scott... I'll buy a donkey today if God will speak to me through the donkey. I'll ride the thing around Broomfield if God will speak to me and tell me exactly what to do. And I understand. But here's the thing. At least in the Bible, any time God intervened in somebody's life and specifically and supernaturally told them what to do, it was not the easiest ride that they were in for. I mean, it was like a huge, monumental, crazy, awkward task that they were told to do. So I'm not so sure we should be so anxious for that to happen in our lives. And after all, I mean, in the course of human history, these guys are the exception. They're not the rule. In the course of human history, it seems that God only chooses to reveal His will specifically and supernaturally that way a handful of times. So it seems that His consistent MO is to reveal His will in a different fashion. And so that's what I want to explore a little bit tonight. I want to do a little whiteboard action tonight. Is that cool with everybody? Jim always gets to do this, and so I'm going to bust this out. We're going to draw kind of a, a ski run here, all right? This is an easy ski run, all right? Now, God has three types of will. I want to talk about this first one here, which is known as God's sovereign... Big, fancy church word I'll talk about here in a second. Sovereign will, okay? Okay? Now, God's sovereign will is just a fancy way of saying this is what God's going to do no matter what. Okay, No matter what, God's going to accomplish this. Nobody can change it. Nobody can stand in the way. Nobody can advise Him against it. Okay, This is what He's going to do no matter what. Here's an example. God was going to send Jesus to this earth to die on the cross for our sins when He wanted, how He wanted, no matter what opposition stood in His way. Okay, Sovereign will. Now, the beautiful thing about sovereign will is... We can't violate it. All right, so this is like a ski run with a boundary that you can just kind of veer into and you never go off course because you just can't violate God's sovereign will. But on the other side of this ski run, we have this thing called God's moral will. All right? Now, we talked a little bit about this in in the Playground series back in the fall if you were here for this. But God's moral will is the thou shalt and thou shalt not, the to do and the not to do things, all right? And we often think of like the negative side, but there's a positive side to God's moral will. We talk about it all the time in here. We just don't put language to it all the time. God's moral will is for us to act justly and love mercy and to walk with our God, to feed the hungry and to take care of the poor and to love one another. Those are all the positive sides, the to do side of God's moral will. All right. Now the negative side is the things not to do, which we typically think about. This would be things like, you know, murder and steal and adultery and things like that. Now here's the thing. God doesn't give us his moral will to spoil our fun. God gives us his moral will so that we won't bang into trees. Okay. This is my Bob Ross impersonation right here. All right. He gives us his moral will because he's a good father. Remember how we talked about this? Any good father, any good parent gives their children rules not to spoil their fun, but to keep them safe. Now, here's the thing about moral will we can violate moral will, right? We got the stories to share about that one, right? I mean, we've got the trees we remember banging into, we remember the injuries we've incurred because of violating God's moral will, all right? So, One you can't violate, the other you can violate. But in between, I want to talk about this third thing, is what we call God's personal will. All right? And that's what we're going to talk a lot about in this series, okay? Because these two things take a lot of things off the table in regards to our our, our decision-making process, right? I mean, this one you can't violate, this one you can, but this takes a lot of things off the table. I mean, you don't have to pray about whether you should feed the poor, That's not something you should go, God, should I feed the poor? No. He's already told us that. He's revealed that to us in the Bible. You don't have to pray about whether you should commit adultery. Okay? Take that one off the table. You don't have to pray about it. He's already revealed to us. No, you don't do that. So in the middle is what we want to pursue. That's what we're trying to figure out here. But the truth is, involved in God's personal will, there's still a lot of choices, right? There's still a lot of different directions we could go. And so that's what we want to try to discern. And so the question still remains within god's personal will the question is god still what do you want me to do what's best here which direction should i go but let me lob one more even one more confusing grenade in, into the mix of this what if that's not even the right question to start with what if that's a great question but what if it's not the right one to start with when we were skiing in Breck the other day, I realized that for the first couple of hours, I'd spent the majority of my time looking at my ski tips. Okay, You've skied with people like me, and you hate them, right? All right. I spent the majority of the, of the time trying to look at what my circumstances were, trying to make sure I didn't cross up my skis, just looking at everything that was in my immediate way. That's not a safe or good way to ski, is it? And so I learned later in the day, you know what? I ski better when I look up, when I look at this much bigger mountain, this much bigger thing, this much more crowded mountain than I realized of things going on around me. And so when I looked up beyond my own circumstances, I saw something much more extraordinary and consequently I could actually navigate the mountain better and stop running into people and people appreciated it. So here's the thing. Before we start asking about God, my specific circumstances, my ski tips, so to speak, maybe we need to look up and ask something much more extraordinary. Maybe we need to move from an old question that we've all asked, which is, God, what do you want me to do? To a new question, which is much bigger, much more extraordinary. God, what are you doing? And we look up beyond this micro-level, for-the-moment circumstance stuff that we have going on, which is all important, but before we address it, maybe we need to say, God, what's this big, broad, huge, overwhelming plan and purpose that you have? What are you doing? What are you accomplishing in the world, God? Apart from my circumstances, in spite of my circumstances, what are you going to do no matter what? What are you trying to do, God? And again, the answer is revealed to us in His Word in the Bible. God's revealed his number one plan, his number one purpose, his big, huge, universal plan for all of us is simply this, to worship, to worship. So the question, God, what are you doing, is answered this way. He's drawing people to himself, as Jim said last week. God wants, He desires, He's purposed, He's planned for you and I to worship Him. That's His ultimate priority. His will for you and me and every other person who ever has or ever will walk around on the face of this tiny little planet for a moment in time is for us to worship Him. Jesus said it this way, the first and greatest commandment, the first and greatest law is simply this, love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, mind, strength with everything we are. So time out for a second. I know, I I don't know. Some of you are going, whoa, whoa, Scott. So what you're saying is, is that God's number one huge universal plan for me, for my life, and for everybody else is to get together in a room like this and sing a few songs every weekend? Because that doesn't sound that big. That doesn't sound that extraordinary. You know, see, that's a narrow view of worship. And unfortunately... It's because of guys like me uh, that we have this narrow view of worship because nine times out of ten when I say the word worship, I'm referring to singing songs in a church building. That's, That's just honestly what I'm referring to. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of what worship is that barely even scratches the surface of what worship is. A friend of mine got an email from a friend of his who's at a new church and one of the statements in his email about this new church that he's at was this. He said, yeah, we have the best worship in the state. Pastors get really dumb sometimes, all right? And so here's what he didn't mean, okay? He did not mean James chapter 1, verse 27. You remember this verse? We looked at it last fall in the Who Cares series. It says this, that that worship that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That wasn't on his radar. And I'm not saying his church doesn't do that. I'm just saying in this moment when he was referring to worship, he was referring to music and singing songs. And that's a narrow view. So let me give you a broad, huge 40,000 foot perspective definition of worship. All right, here it is. Worship is our response to who God is and what he's done with all we are. Worship is our response to who God is and what he's done with all we are. Worship is how we respond with our whole lives. Worship means to devote yourself to, to give yourself over to, to make much of, to magnify, to point towards, to attach a high value, to ascribe much worth to God through all we say and all we do. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Colossians 3.23. It says this, and whatever you do, whatever you do within God's sovereign will, moral will, boundaries and his personal will filter, whatever you do in this stream, whatever you do. Work at it with all your heart as though working for the Lord, not for men. This real famous theologian guy named A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says this, if we give ourselves to God's call to worship, everyone will do more than he or she is now doing. Only what he or she does will have significance and meaning to it. Significance, meaning. Isn't that what we're searching for? Isn't that what we so desire? I mean, if you put the two words together, I think you would have this word purpose come out. Suffice it to say, our purpose is to worship God. And you may be going, whoa, Scott, hold on a second. I I am not a worshiper. I'm just checking this deal out. This is just my first time here, my third time here, whatever. I haven't signed on the dotted line for anything. I am not a worshiper. I'm just trying to get some pointers for life. Here's the truth. We're all worshipers. Every one of us. The most fundamental truth about humans is that we naturally gravitate towards worship. The question is not, will we worship? The question is, who and what will we worship? Much like when you find yourself on top of that mountain, the question is not, am I going to go down the mountain? The question is just, how? Because gravity will take care of you going down the mountain. And I discovered this firsthand the other day. hey just so you know i didn't say any words i wouldn't say in front of my kids our tech guys have it out for me they're always trying to get me fired all right so just talk to them about that one all right I, i don't even know how to operate a vcr much less edit video all right so here's the thing without gravity you ain't skiing gravity is necessary for skiing But gravity can work against you as much as it can work for you. And I found a new bruise on my knee today to prove it, all right? This author named Harold Best says it this way, nobody does not worship. As long as the world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone, an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit or God through Christ. You see, worship is like gravity. It'll pull you towards something good and true and fulfilling. Or it'll pull you towards something painful and false. A guy named Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, figured this one out really quick, especially one day when he was walking through this city called Athens. Paul had been planting all kinds of churches, and he ran into some trouble in this place called Thessalonica. And so his buddies go, hey, Paul, head on over to Athens and kind of hang out for a while. We'll meet you there because it's getting pretty dicey over here. And so we find the story of this in Acts chapter 17. And so Paul's walking around in the middle of Athens. And here's the thing about Athens. Athens was the epicenter of philosophy. It was the epicenter, at the forefront of progressive thinking. I mean, these were the smartest, most intelligent people on the earth. And at the same time, they were incredibly religious. And so here's what Paul says in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Okay, so they had, they had these items that were representations of gods they believed to exist, and so they were bound down in worshiping and paying tribute to these idols. One guy named Petronius, who was a contemporary of Paul, said it this way It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man, just everywhere. So Paul does his normal drill. He goes to the Jewish synagogue and he reasons with them and tells them about Jesus, tells them about how he's the fulfillment of the law. And then when they kind of kick him out, he heads out to the marketplace and he starts sharing all his ideas. And he's kind of this this young up-and-coming thinker. And that was not abnormal in Athens to have people like that in the streets, sharing their ideas, debating with people. But usually these young up-and-comers never made it past the marketplace. But on this day, Paul catches the eye of the elite. This 30-man council known as the Areopagus, sees Paul, hears some of his ideas, and invites him to come speak to them. And this is a big deal. I mean, it's a great opportunity for Paul. And so here's what he says in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to to proclaim to you. Let's take a time out for a second because it's really easy for us to look back at this and go, well... That doesn't make any sense. I mean, how could they have an altar devoted to an unknown God? Just on the off chance that there's some God out there they don't know about, they're afraid they might offend, so let's go ahead and make an altar to him. We'll make some sacrifices to it and worship it just to keep that God happy. I mean, to us, that that may sound totally ludicrous and crazy. In fact, we may go, how could you be an intelligent, thinking person and worship idols at the same time? Maybe these guys weren't as smart as they thought they were. Well, I don't know. Guys like Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates came from here. I don't think the issue is they weren't smart. That's not the problem. And let's be honest. Wouldn't the same be true of us today? If Paul walked around Boulder today, if Paul walked around Denver, Metro area, Broomfield, Westminster, Lafayette, whatever, today, what would he see? And what would his conclusions be? You see, I think Paul would come join us and he would go, People of Denver, Metro, Boulder area, I can see that you are very religious. I think he would see lots of objects of worship if he walked through our malls, if he walked through our houses, our neighborhoods. He would see very quickly what we've devoted our lives to, right? And see, we're very religious too. So apparently, being intelligent thinking people and worshipers aren't mutually exclusive traits. Because as people, we are hard-wired to worship. And the natural gravitational pull of that worship can pull us in a good direction or a bad direction. And unfortunately, we find ourselves oftentimes gravitating towards things that are less than best. And we can ascribe too much worth to something that's not worth much, right? I mean, that's our story, so many of us. I mean, how many of us have devoted our lives to a person? We've put a person on the pedestal that only God belongs on, and we've come up wanting because that person can't provide, that person can't satisfy, and at worst, that person actually hurts us. How many of us have have worshipped stuff and money and things we talked about in this past series, and all we've got to show for it is bankruptcy? Bankruptcy. Or lack of happiness or lack of satisfaction, whatever. How many of us have devoted ourselves to ourselves and all we've got to point to is loneliness and isolation? How many of us, those are our stories? See, that's why we have to look up beyond our own ski tips. That's why we have to begin with God and what He's doing in our life. And that's what Paul points these really smart guys in the book of Acts to. Check it out. He goes on, he says, listen, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's God's sovereign will. You didn't get to decide when and where you would be born or who you were born to. That's God's choice. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and, fa- and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. There's so many things in there I'd love to point to, but here's the one thing I want to point out. It's that phrase, in him we, lo- we live and move and have our being. The original Greek word for that word live is where we get our word biography. In other words, it's in God that our story gets written. It's in Him that we find significance and meaning. It's in Him and in Him him alone that we find purpose. So let me just boil this all down, because that all sounds great, doesn't it? sounds nice, sounds kind of whatever. But what does that really mean? I mean, in light of making a decision, Scott, if I've got a decision in front of me today, what's all that have to do with me making a decision? And again, I think Paul could teach us this one pretty well. In the book of Romans, Paul spends like the first 11 and a half chapters trying to unpack some of the most deep theological truths that have ever existed. He's talking about law and justification and grace and propitiation and all these crazy things. He's talking about this deep stuff. And finally, Paul, exhausted, sets his pen down and looks up. In light of all that, and sings a song. If you don't believe me check out romans chapter 11 verse 33 through 36 In some of your bibles it may have a heading that says the doxology doxa means glory ology song or speech so this is the glory song the glory speech and here's what paul says i love the words he says this have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of god this deep deep wisdom it's way over our heads we'll never figure it out is there anyone around who can explain god Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do. Anyone who's, who's done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him and everything ends up in him. Always glory. Always praise. Yes, yes, yes. Here's the thing. Paul doesn't stop there. The chapter stops there, but Paul doesn't stop there. He has this like, if all that's true, then what moment? He has an if-so-then-what moment. If all that's true about who God is, then how should we respond? And Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1, he says this, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. You know what that is? Worship. It's worship. So the question becomes, what's your if-so-then-what You see, everything we do, every choice we make, reflects what we believe to be true or not true about who God is. The way you run your business reflects what you believe to be true or not true about who God is. The way you study, the way you exercise, the way you eat, the way you parent, the way you work and rest and treat those around you, reflects what you believe to be true about who God is, or what you don't believe to be true about who God is. So everything I've said today is so I can say this next thing. All this stuff, all the whiteboard stuff, all this stuff, all this is because I want you to remember this one thing. If you have a decision in front of you, the first filter, the first filter has to be, should be, doesn't have to be, should be this. If I choose this path, if I go down this road, if I make this decision, how does this decision reflect the worth of God? How does this decision reflect the worth of God? Does it pull me closer to what I understand to be true about Him and His character? Is it true? Is it good? Is it honest? Is it loving? Or am I just skiing as fast away from him as possible if I go down this path? So is God and who he is what drives my decisions? My moving, my breathing, my everyday, my walking around life? Let me answer for me. Oftentimes no. A lot of the time no. Far too often in my life what I do is I make a trade I trade God in as, my, as the object of my affection, as the object of my worship, and I replace Him, sometimes with another person. Because oftentimes I can fall into people-pleasing. And so when I fall into people-pleasing, I'm actually making a trade. and I'm going, I'm going to devote my life into making you happy because you're worth more to me than God. Sometimes I make the trade and I put myself in His place. Because I'm really concerned about my wants, my needs, my desires, the things that I want to see work out in my life. And so I trade God in, put myself in that place, and every decision I make gets driven by what I want sometimes. And Paul said this would happen. Because it's been happening ever since there have been people. In Romans 1.25, he says this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served. It sounds absurd when you read it out loud. Listen. Worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Well, as long as you put it that way, it doesn't make any sense at all, does it? But that's what we do. Who is forever praised. He is forever praised. At one point, the Bible says if people don't praise him, the rocks will shout out. You see, long before we make any decisions to move anywhere, say anything, marry him, go out with her, take that job, divorce, whatever that looks like, long before we ask God to tell us his will for our circumstances, we have to look up and ask a much bigger, broader question. God, what are you doing? And God, if I do this, how does it reflect your worth? And God, am I prone? Are we exchanging truth for a lie if we do this? See, Is what's fueling your life decisions, your actions, your choices even true? Because Jesus is truth. And if he's not fueling my life, then I'm exchanging truth for lies. So let me wrap up this way. Are you continually frustrated? You feel like you've just been banged into one too many trees and you've been taking places. The gravitational pull of your life has taken you places you never wanted to go. Do you ever feel like you have no purpose And consequently, do you find yourself paralyzed, not knowing where to turn, feeling like you're totally unequipped to make your next move, your next decision, because your last move, your last decision, led to absolute disaster? Can I ask a really tough, invasive, and personal question that I've been asking myself for a couple weeks now? Maybe you're worshiping the wrong thing. Could that be true? Maybe you're operating outside of your purpose. Maybe you're trying to find purpose in someone or something that just can't provide it. Maybe you're trading truth for a lie. Can I suggest until you recognize who you are and what you were created for, you'll always feel that way. And until you recognize and determine that your ultimate purpose is to be most satisfied in who God is, until we recognize that we were made to worship we will continue, continue to be lost and we'll never find purpose. Let's pray. God, I come before you, and uh, a lot of us have bumps and bruises and wounds from the places we've gone and the times we've violated your moral will or the places other people have taken us, places we didn't want to go. And God, sometimes we don't understand the circumstances that are doled out to us. We just don't. We don't know why you do what you do. But God, there's a whole lot of us in here that we realize we've made some decisions on our own that have led us to painful places. And God, a whole bunch of us in here have a decision in front of us right now Or we had one last week and we wish we could have run it through the right filters before we made it But for those of us who have one in front of us right now father, could we begin to run our lives through the filter of How do our decisions reflect how much you're worth to us? Because god you are worthy You are worth it God you are amazing and you are awesome And you did create us to worship you and god in my life at least I'm only satisfied when I look to you for my purpose. So tonight, maybe just for a few more moments, could we all look to you for our purpose? Could in you, we live and move and find our story. In Jesus' name, amen.